This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In today's day and age where the consumer expects convenience. And so that's why we moved more towards doing the deliveries. Obviously the farm store, people have to come to us, but we opened the farm store because it's it's an experience for people. And that's that was part of the reason we opened the store was obviously from a sales standpoint, but also I think people want to feel more connected to the food they eat. And I think you can successfully open a store like we've opened, even out in in, in the country in rural America. That was Dirk Tanner, a regenerative farmsteader from Greenbrier, Arkansas. And this is the Farm Traveler Podcast, and I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And on this episode, I'll be chatting with Dirk, who has amassed over 390,000 followers across all of his social media channels on what got him started farmsteading and educating online. We'll also cover why he started selling at farmer's markets, but stopped once he stumbled upon a highly successful combination of his farm store and offering delivery routes to his customers. Dirk will also share how he's been inspired by other farmers in the space, like Raymond Tyler from Rose Creek Farms, and even Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms, who you might remember we had on the show back in episode 187. You'll also learn the importance of meeting consumer expectations, why some crops sell and others don't, the pros and cons of both meat and egg-laying chickens, and how farmers can help increase consumer knowledge of how food is grown. To connect with Dirk, check out the links in the description below, and also check out more of our Farm Traveler content over at thefarmtraveler.com, and of course, our ever-popular YouTube channel. Now, please enjoy episode 206 with Dirk Tanner. So yeah, after a little bit of technical fiasco, we're, we're finally chatting, but um, Dirk, I'm excited to chat with you, man. You are... I feel like you've been kind of blowing up recently on Instagram, on YouTube and all the good stuff. Like, how's that been going for you lately? <laughs> uh, it's, it's been a grind, but you know, <laughs> that's, it's my passion, you know, and that's, that's the reason I 
started creating content was just, you know, the passion to help people and educate people, you know, about, you know, how to grow their own food. And that's something that's been a passion for a long time. And I've just, I've been trying to be consistent with it. And, uh, you know, it's, it started to pay off this past year, which has been really encouraging. So. That's awesome. So you are, I guess, technically a regenerative farm stand, right? Yeah. You know, there's so many terms these days. It's all kind of confusing, um, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we focus on, you know, sustainable regenerative methods of, of growing and raising animals. Um, you know, but yeah, regenerative and all that, it's all, it's all buzzwords nowadays. Um, you know, so it's interesting, uh, interesting to talk about all the terms within this whole world. I bet. Yeah. We've talked about in the show. Um, we've had the Shiloh farmer on, we've talked about his farmsteading, kind of the difference between like farmsteading and being a farmer and being like a backyard farmer. Like what does, we've talked about regenerative farming a lot here on the show, but on like a, you know, like a thousand acre scale. So what does that look like for a farmsteader being regenerative? You know, are you asking in regards to, you know, Help clarify your question a little bit. I'm not quite sure what you're asking. Yeah, no. So like on a, like you could do chickens, you do a bunch of crops. Like what do you do regeneratively on the scale that you're farming? And like, what does, what does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Cause a lot of people ask, you know, like what is, what's the difference <laughs> from what you're doing and like what they would do in, in a conventional realm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you're, you're really trying to care for the soil and, one of the ways that you do that, especially with crops, is, you know, keeping the soil covered, you know, with living roots or with a silage tarp, um, you know, using lots of organic matter and compost. You know, you're really wanting to partner with um, with nature, so to speak. And the same thing within the soil is we're wanting to partner with that and not destroy it by constantly tilling it and leaving it uncovered um, and letting it erode. And then the same thing with the chickens, you know, rotating those around. That's why we use a mobile chicken coop, which most people have seen that are interested in, in homesteading <laughs> or small scale farming. You know, there's a reason for that because you're allowing that grass to recover. You know, you're fertilizing it with the, the animal manures. And at the end of the day, it's it's leading to healthier animals and a healthier and healthier land. So, um so I think at a, at a baseline level, those are, those are kind of some of the main principles we try to operate by, um, you know, and, and we're still very basic, even just with chickens. Like, I feel like that's a very introductory animal um, for just a homesteader, but also, you know, for, for farming. I feel like that's probably the first animal people get into is, is, is raising chickens, whether they're meat birds or, you know, they're for, you know, egg production. So, um, yeah, it's a great animal. I, I love chickens. So, you know, going off of that, um, I love chickens too. Um, so homesteading, like you're going to raise chickens for the eggs and also for the meat. But I know like on a commercial scale, those are two very different birds. So I guess when you're farmsteading or homesteading, like how do you try to draw like a really good, you want a really good chicken that's going to give you good eggs, but also like a good meat bird. So like what kind of a balance do you get there? Yeah, it's tough because it's like, you know, raising chickens for the meat versus raising chickens for the eggs are two yeah. completely separate enterprises, in my opinion. Um, you know, so everyone's got different opinions, especially on the meat bird side. You know, the uh, the Cornish cross is the classic 
meat mm. bird that people raise. It's the same bird that's raised in confinement, you know, chicken housing. But a lot of people try to raise those out on pasture and they don't, they perform terribly. Um, oh, okay. And, you know, you, you get mixed reviews and opinions on that. But like, I know people that raise beef, chicken, and pork and they don't raise Cornish crosses because they all die like out on pasture. Mm. Like they just, they're not made to free range. Um, you know, so, so for us, you know, we're, we don't raise meat birds. We just, we raise the chickens just for, for the eggs. Um, but you know, we use, we, we raise dual purpose breeds that when we do, when those birds quit laying, we can't butcher them and eat them, uh, which is why I really prefer dual purpose, you know, heritage type breeds for that reason. Um, you know, it is, you know, it's not a hybrid. It's, it's, it's a dual purpose breed. So when that thing's done, we can, we can butcher it and it actually has a little bit of meat on its bone. So. That's perfect. And yeah, you would think that if you took the chickens that are usually in the confinement barns, you put them outside and they would thrive. So that's interesting that you do that. And they're like, no, this is worse. Put me back inside, please. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people, there's, there's still a gazillion farmers that raise the Cornish cross. Um, mm. I think it just depends on your climate, where you're at. You know, I think you could probably successfully raise those better, you know, so to speak, further north where it's not as hot, but I don't know. It just, uh, it depends on the farmer and their preferences. Um, every, I think everyone's a little bit different on that. Um, but yeah, I, I would think the same thing that they would thrive, but really they've been bred to be, to get as put on as much muscle and, and convert that feed as fast as possible to a marketable bird, which is why they grow so fast. You know, they've been bred to do that. And that's been in the context of, of confinement chicken housing at the end of the day, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And like while they're while they're kind of out and about and you're moving around in, in the chicken coop, like how much feed are you having to give them? Because, you know, they're getting a lot of grubs and stuff. So like how much additional feed are you having to give them? Because they're kind of like, quote unquote, more outside. Yeah, you know, the things with chickens and pigs to me, and I, and I don't want to derail the question or derail us at all. But to me, the thing with the thing with chickens and pigs is they, they still require a heavy amount of inputs. Um mm you know, versus ruminants like cows and sheep, you know, they can convert, if you have the space, they can convert strictly grass to putting meat on their, on their body to, you know, they're converting something that, you know, we are growing through sun and rain and soil, mm -hmm. and then they can convert that. So to me, the only true regenerative animals, in my opinion, are, are ruminants because, Chickens and pigs, they have so much input. And so even with the feed, again, going back to the question, you know, we still, we go through, we've got like 65 laying hens, which isn't very many. Um, we go through about 50 pound, a 50 pound bag every three days, three to four days. Okay. Um, so you, you've still got a pretty significant input cost on the grain production. Um you know, and I, I wish it wasn't that, that way, but that's just the nature of, of raising chickens and pigs. You know, we don't raise pigs, but just in general, um, to me, that's one of the, the greatest downfalls to, you know, pigs and chickens are the heavy inputs. Yeah, no, that's interesting because, you know, I feel like a lot of people would think, you know, the chickens are outside, you're moving the coop around, they're getting enough diet. Like, no, like you're still going to have a lot of inputs like feed and you're going to have to watch them and give them a lot more supplemental diet as opposed to, you know, like you're saying, ruminants, cows that can just go out there and eat the grass and, you know, convert the grass into meat eventually. Yeah, which is cool to me. You know, if you have the space, it's like it, to me, it's pretty powerful to think about even just from a homestead standpoint and even from a farming standpoint, 
you know, if you have the space, um, man, I just, the, the, the power of not having to have the input cost, quote unquote, of, of bringing in lots of grain would be pretty cool. Yeah. But again, you know, at the same time, then you run into a drought and you don't have grass and you're buying in, you know, you're buying in hay. So it's not a perfect world, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now, fun fact, do you know what the most, I guess, um, shoot, the most energy efficient animal or like livestock is in terms of like converting feed to mass? I don't. I'm curious. Tell me. It is fish. Fun fact. So for every pound of fish or for every pound of a feed a fish eats, it puts on one pound of body weight. Wow. So fun fact. But again, like they're ha- they get like no extra diet. Like they've got to have all that feed. So it's like all the input, but you get a pretty decent output. So not bad. Have you interviewed, uh, I don't know if you've had him on the podcast. It's, his account's called Smoking Chimneys, but basically they're up in the, have you, have you, uh, have you tried to get him on your podcast? Cause yeah, I've, like I've, I've, cool I've, yeah, I've had him on here. Let me look it up. What episode was it? It was a couple months ago. Yeah, I had him on because I have never talked about trout farming at all. And like fun little backstory, my grandpa had a catfish farm in my hometown. So I was like, hey, like I grew up around aquaculture. But yeah, I had him on. Um, let me see. I'm just looking up trout right now on the website. Let's see. Had him on. That was episode 181. Yeah, talking with Ty from Smoking Chimneys. That was super fun having him on, learning about you know how they do that on a commercial scale. I'll have to go back and listen to that because I've been intrigued from following him for the past couple of years, just their operation. It seems really, really cool. I just, I haven't heard anyone else doing it like they're doing. So, um, yeah, he's got a really cool story. And like, even they've partnered with white Oak pastures, which is huge. I mean, one of the names when it comes to like regenerative agriculture in the States, I thought that was super cool, but yeah, they're doing a really cool thing up there. What are they? They're in Virginia or West Virginia? White Oak. Are you talking about no, 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 um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah, Georgia. And then I think uh, Polyface is up in Virginia, I believe. Yeah, Polyface of Virginia. I had Joe Salatin on the show, um, like six months ago. You need to go check that one out. So I have a clip of that on YouTube, and I kind of cheated a little bit on YouTube. I took um, a thumbnail of Joe Rogan and um, Joe Salatin, and I made that the thumbnail for the video. Which in the video I talked to him about what it was like to be on the Joe Rogan show, and that has gotten like twenty to thirty thousand views on YouTube so far. It's one of our best performing <laughs> videos. So he he was a wealth of knowledge to chat with Dude, about Joel, all the stuff he's doing. Cow. I mean, that you want to talk about? Yeah, like you said, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, you could talk to that guy for years and still not, you know, pour out that entire cup, so to speak. Oh yeah, like do you follow him at all? Like, what all have you learned from him? Like during your whole I've just farming read his books experience? and stuff. Read his books. And oh really? Obviously anything that they put out, you know, they don't really have a YouTube channel or anything, you know. Yeah. So it's just basically people interviewing him and stuff, or, or that have filmed them and put it on YouTube. But yeah, dude, that he was—he's a legend, man. Like I'm so grateful for guys like that that have paved the way because you know at one point it's like, dude, people thought Joel was. Probably, I mean, they called him the lunatic farmer for a reason. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Everyone thought he was kind of cuckoo, and you know, at least from the conventional world of farming. And obviously, now it's way more mainstream. But I'm just really grateful for guys like that that you know have really put a lot of energy and effort. Like they're just they're very mission based. They it's bigger than just themselves, or you know, they really have a passion and heart for it. Um, so it's cool to see. I love, I've never met Joel, but I, I hope to one day because he's definitely had a major impact. 
Yeah, he's got he's got a lot of workshops. You you should go to one. He's got he does so many workshops and seminars. I'm sure that would be super fun to go to, like especially to, like tours at actual Polyface. That would be a yeah. blast. I know. I'd love to get up there one day. I gotta make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be super fun. Yeah, I feel like the whole regenerative farming movement really got a lot of traction. Like he he made it mainstream, and a lot of people saw that it could really be done on a big scale. And then you've got so many large, medium, and small farmers that really started doing it, which is awesome. Like, is there anything that you kind of, anything on your farmstead, you're like, hey, yeah, I did, I do this because of Joel, because of the huge movement that he's a part of? Oh, I mean, 100% the, the rotating the chickens around, using, you know, mobile chicken coops, the electric fencing, you know, I mean, all that's from... All that's from Joel, and he and he talks a lot about the benefits and and the reasons for it, and yeah, you know, that's that's why ultimately that we we, you know, have done it the way we've done is just learn from him. It's like it makes sense, you know. And and the great part is even with the mobile setups, you know, it's like dude, you could I could move to another state and take all that with me. Um, you know, it's all mobile infrastructure, which Joel goes into a lot in his books of the power of having mobile infrastructures because things change. You need to get, move it to another property. Um, you know, really they're, they're cheaper too. Um, but you know, it's been interesting because we're merging this realm of market gardening and, and the animal piece as well, which you don't see a ton of just because they're completely two different worlds, you know, of growing annual, annual vegetables. And then obviously doing the animal management, um, it's definitely an interesting dynamic and I want to get into more of the animal side as well, but, um, it's just a balance of the two, you know, um, I bet. And, and like go, everything that you've kind of learned from him, is there stuff that you've kind of have to adapt because of your environment, because of your exact farm, like anything where he's like, Hey, you need to do a, and you, you've tried it and then you had to do B instead. Um, I can't, no, not necessarily because the only application I can think of with Joel is the chickens. Okay. Um, just because obviously his main realm has been more of the animal side. Um, you know, he, he mentions, you know, some hoop houses and stuff and growing some vegetables, but a lot of his work has been more towards that side of thing versus the market garden. So I think a lot of the, um, the guidance and mentorship I've gotten on the market gardening side has, has been unrelated to Joel. Um, and, um, but yeah, everything he talks about has worked, you know, and it makes <laughs> sense um, with the chickens for sure. So, well, well, that's good to hear and, hear and kind of going off of that stuff. Um, like how collaborative are you with other farmers around you, even just across the country and like, Hey, like let's share some, some ideas on, you know, whether it's market gardening or, or just our farmstead in general, like how collaborative is it for you? You know, there's some, there's a few guys that I have like, you know, a working relationship with, they're done. There's a couple of guys in Texas that I kind of communicate with, you know, a lot through DMs, but mm. I feel like we're friends, never actually met, but like we, you know, <laughs> DM all the time, each, you know, messaging each other about farming, what's working, what's not working. But, you know, the unique part about it is every farm is so unique of what's working, what's not, what's selling, what's not. And that's, that's the beauty of it all. You know, I think, um, some people can sell Cornish crosses and, and, you know, other people, you know, will raise a, a heritage breed in the, you know, and there's a, there's a, uh, 
um, an account I follow where they're kind of doing more of the agroforestry and they're raising a, a slow growing heritage breed chicken in the understory canopy of their agroforestry, but it takes them like 16 weeks to raise the chicken versus an eight week Cornish cross. Oh, wow. And, but, but again, it comes down to, they've got the market for that to where they can sell that bird and it makes sense from a financial standpoint. So it's just, it's unique um, from, from farm to farm, you know, even from a vegetable standpoint, there's certain things that another farm could grow and sell great. And then I could grow it and not sell it at all. Um, And that's the, that's the interesting and hard part about it is you could take someone else's system and the system may work, but but the way you're applying it or the cert, the way you're going about it may not, it may not work from a financial standpoint, or you'd be actually able to sell the product in your local market, you know. So yeah, I've I've heard very similar stories from other like farmers and farmsteaders. It's that they both try to grow the same crop, but you know, in Texas the crop would sell, but in Florida it wouldn't sell. And it's all about I don't know. I feel like experimentation. You've got to see what your local consumers want because if they want it, they're going to buy it. If they don't want it. They're not going to buy it. No matter how much of it you grow, if they don't want it, they are not going to buy it. hundred percent. I mean, we're in a, we're like 40 minutes north of, of kind of our major metropolitan area, which is still very small. I mean, let's Little, Little Rock, Arkansas, we're 40 minutes away from there. Little yeah. Rock's a small city in the grand scheme of, you know, a Nashville or a Dallas or Houston or something like that. I mean, it's tiny compared to that. So that comes down to the marketability of certain items as well. Like we're kind of out in a rural area and like we, we grew fairy tale eggplant this year, which is like this many beautiful purple striped eggplants. But for one, there's not that many people that eat eggplant in our area. And then two, it's so unique that they don't know what to do with it. It's like, what is that? (laughs) Yeah. And so for us, it's like, we have to stick to what are tried and true vegetables that people eat like carrots. It's like, okay, you know, lettuce, uh, you know, um, so that's that's a learning curve as well, I think, for a lot of farmers. Um, whereas you may be able to crush it and sell a ton of fairy tale eggplant in Nashville. Uh, yeah, it just depends. Again, it just comes down to your market. Um, so that's interesting. Like, what do you think? I don't know. Farmers and I guess even like restaurants can do to make consumers like more adventurous when it comes to like trying different ingredients, like the the fairy eggplant. That's kind of cool. <laughs> um, it's tough because you know even if you put it <laughs> on the menu, they've got to order it. Um, I think yeah. it just comes down to the person. Like, are they willing to try different? They want to try things they've never had, you know. And most and most people, I, not most people, but I feel like a lot of people they they figure out what they like and they just kind of stick to it. Um, and I'm pretty similar. I think we're all creatures of habit. Um, so yeah, I just I just don't grow it. If it's not selling, I crop out. <laughs> like I, I crop out the bed. It's just not worth it. We cropped out a whole bed of fairy tale plant that was producing, but it's just like it's not selling, so it's not worth. It's not worth wasting the space on something that's that I'm throwing in the compost. Um, that's just that's no fun. So <laughs> no, it, it it doesn't sound like that at all. So like, what's your process look like? What all like? What are your staple crops? How do you harvest them? How do you sell them? How do you interact with your consumers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so our so our staple vegetable crop is spring mix. Okay, we grow that year round. Um, and, you know, a lot of what I've learned on the market garden side has been from Ray Tyler. Okay. He is the owner of Rose Creek Farms in Selmer, Tennessee. 
Um, that would be a great guy to have on. Um, I would say in the southeastern United States, he's he, – I mean, he, to me, he's kind of like the Joel – he's one of the Joel Salatins to me of market gardening. Oh, shoot. Okay. And um, has done it at an incredibly high level. They're, they're like, I think an hour and a half outside of Nashville. So that's one of the markets they go to. But mm-hmm. so a lot of what I've learned, I, you know, I give credit to him because I don't think our farm would be successful without Ray Tyler. Um, and so we learned the spring mix specifically growing spring mix because that's, that's like our foundational crop. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can grow a spring mix, like from a market gardening standpoint, like a financial, a financial viability, you've got to have a crop that you can really, that's like kind of your base foundation and that can really, you know, cash flow you really well. And for most small farms, like you've got to grow a spring mix. That's just my opinion. If you're growing vegetables, you know, you know, to make money, you've got to grow spring mix. And if you can successfully grow spring mix year round, man, that just gives you that consistent cash flow week after week after week. So that's a big one for us. Obviously, the microgreens the same way, um, you know, and then we'll do the root vegetables like the carrots and the radishes and the summer crops um, like okra and squash and tomatoes and peppers and things like that. Um, but those are just kind of bonuses, in my opinion. The spring mix is really our bread and butter. Um, but I tell people it's like, you know, if you can put it in a salad, we probably grow it. Um, mm, there you go. And, you know, we're a salad farm. We're not growing acres of corn. Um, <laughs> and so some farms will. It's just that's not our, our focus. But, yeah, Ray's, Ray's been a huge uh, – had a huge impact on on us and a lot of small-scale farmers. Um, so. So how are you growing lettuce year-round? Like, how are your seasons up in Arkansas? Yeah, so we're in zone 7B and – the coldest we'll get in the winter is about zero degrees. And that's, we'll get that once a year where we okay. have a, a major, you know, polar vortex that blows through. And then we'll get, we'll get those zero degree temps for a week or four or five days. And that happens about once a year. Other than that, our, our winters are pretty mild. Um, you know, it'll freeze. It'll get down into the upper teens in the twenties as the lows, but you know, we go up to 50 degrees in January and be sunny. Um, so if you have some, some, uh, some greenhouses, you know, you can, you know, you can really channel those crops, especially stuff like spring mix and kale and, you know, your, your greens like that, you can successfully grow it all in winter. It just grows slower. Mm, okay. um, and then the summertime, you've just got to grow really good varieties and grow heat tolerant varieties is the game changer. So you can't just grow ran- a random lettuce, you know, you bought <laughs> off Amazon and hope it's going to grow when it's 100 degrees out. It's not. It's just going to go to seed and you won't be able to eat it. So um, so that's one of the, the big ways, you know, we'll, we'll use shade cloth. Like right now, it's got shade cloth on it because it's just so hot. You've got to. Because, mm. I mean, lettuce is a, it's a cold season crop. Um, it's, not, it's not meant to really grow in, in the uh, when it's 100 degrees out. So. Yeah, and the scorching heat that we're all seeing everywhere. I mean, I can't imagine that lettuce would be very happy at all to be outside. No, and it's tough. And, you know, <laughs> especially as you get further south, like into Texas, it's just, man, you know, any, anywhere in the deep south. Um, yeah, growing the lettuce in this time frame is just, it's it's tough even where we're at, much less, you know, being down, you know, much further south. It just, 
It'd be hard, which is the reason that people like farmers in Florida, they don't like this is their off season because it's just so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm up here in North Florida and like close to I'm in Panama City, like kind of between kind of close to Tallahassee. And um, I usually sometimes have a garden, like a little spring garden, but I've got nothing growing. But the only thing that is growing is mint, which okay. I didn't plant. I planted it like a year ago and then it died, but now it's coming back. And that is the only thing that is thriving. So I'm like, all right, I guess mint can live in whatever conditions. Mint is, yeah, that's mint is relentless. And okra too. <laughs> I feel like okra is one of those things. It's like, golly, it, it loves the <laughs> hotter it is, the more it, it loves it, you know. That's true. I So I went to the University of Florida and I grew okra on my porch of the apartment just in like a little pot. But the leaves look a little bit like some reefer. And so every now and then I'd have people walk by. They'd be like, bro, what you grow? And I'm like, dude, I swear it's okra. It's nothing else. It's okra. They're like, okay, yeah, sure. And I was like, for real, it's okra. Oh, my gosh. So (laughs) tell me, is it okay if I ask you some questions? Oh, yeah. No, dude, go for it. (laughs) Because I'm curious, like, what, like, when did you start? Like, when did you start the podcast? Why did you start it? How did you get into, you know, gardening agriculture like what what's what's what started this journey for you because i always love hearing other people's stories of like how'd you get into this and <laughs> how did it become a passion for you well thanks yeah yeah so long story short i was super active in ffa in high school i was a state officer here in florida and then i got my degree in agricultural education um from uf and so i taught for two years but i kind of i missed I, I taught in daytona and so i missed being home back in panama city And so I moved, started doing software work, but then I was like, you know what? I kind of miss being an active part in agriculture. So I started the blog in 2017 and then like the fall of 2018, no, it was the spring of 2019, like podcasts started booming and my wife was like, Hey, you should start a podcast. I was like, I don't know how to do that. Like that looks difficult. And so I looked into it. I was like, Oh, that's kind of easy. So started it in like the summer of 2019 and been doing it for gosh, like four years and it's been super fun i do i try to do like some farm tours i'm doing one next friday in mariana florida with a, with a farm called lazy acres farms and they do pork beef and a couple of row crops and stuff like that so that'll be super fun but i just like being like i'm not a farmer at all i just like kind of keeping my pulse on agriculture kind of like learn and see what's going on my friends call me like the food and farming guru so if they have if, if they have any questions like Hey, what's organic or like, is this good? They always text me. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> so you grew up, so you're, you're born and raised in Panama city. So born and raised in Bluntstown, Florida, which is an hour from Panama city. But anytime you wanted to do anything, we would come to Panama city because they've got a movie theater, target, everything. Yeah. Bluntstown has two stoplights and that's it. So but it was, now so they've got rural, three. It was a rural up. Like you, you grew up in the country is what I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we had a couple of beef cattle ranches, a couple of smaller farms, but what a lot of people do in North Florida is forestry. There are timber farms everywhere. Like my grandpa had maybe about 20 or 30 acres of timber. And so they grow that for like 20, 30 years, harvest it, grow another. So that's what a lot of people do in Blunt Sound is timber farming. Yeah, that makes sense. I've got a family in South Arkansas and that's all it is down there. Just a lot of, a lot of timber. Nice. Yeah. Timber is, it's so fun. I mean, it's such a cool industry and people don't really think about it as agriculture, but it's like, yeah, but you sit on the crop for like 20, 30 years yeah. and then you harvest it's, it. It's, like, a, it's a long, long-term play. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. You're not getting your, you're not getting any money until you get that harvested in a couple of years. It's 20, that's like 20, 25 years. You've got to 
pay attention to it. Make sure it doesn't burn down. Obviously, you've got to like do some prescribed burns. You've got to thin it every couple of years. It's wild. I mean, we we had a hurricane a couple of years ago and it wiped out so many timber farms. And so people have had to clear it. And there's so many so much land that's just still sitting there. And the trees are literally like a 45 degree angle. They're just waiting waiting for them to decay. Wild. So now do you just do you try to schedule a, a podcast week, on a weekly basis? Yeah, I try to do it weekly. And when I started off, it was really geared towards like interviewing all farmers and ranchers like around the world. But I learned through podcasting like the riches are in the niches and you need to like be a little bit more specific. And so I'd say for like the past two or three years, I tried to make it geared towards more like agritourism and then direct to consumer. It's, but I mean, still like highlighting like big time farmers that are super popular on social media or like cool technology. But, you know, that way it's kind of a little bit easier for consumers to connect with farmers. So that I guess yeah. you could say that's kind of like my end goal with the show and with like the YouTube channel and all that good stuff, like making it easier for farmers and consumers to connect. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, I think, for farmers. A lot of people get into farming because they like to farm and they yeah. don't they don't have any people. Not saying they don't have people skills, but they don't they, they may not like people. They may, not, they may not like interacting with people. And it's like, I hate to break it to you, but like you're probably going to have to interact with some people if yeah. you want to run a business and you want to sell your, what you're growing. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's just, uh, it's part of business, um, you know. And so a hundred percent. Now, do you, I mean, you're soup. what you've got on Instagram, like a hundred thousand followers. Like, do you think social media is making it a little bit easier for um, farmers to connect with consumers? Oh, a thousand percent. If they utilize really? it, you know, if they're mm-hmm. not utilizing it, I just, I don't know. I just, I don't have a, a lot of sympathy if you're not using a, a free platform to, to reach consumers. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I think it's made it way easier, but the thing is, is if you've still got to go out and you still got to get a client and convert them to a recurring client. You know, even I feel like the the social media is a, a connection point, but you still got to go get after it and, you mm. know, get consumers. And whether you're going to a farmer's market, which we did that for a while, we don't need longer because we had the farm store. Um, you know, we, we so we originally started going to a farmer's market mm-hmm. and we did that for a while. Our farmer's market, the best one that we have in our in Little Rock, which is about 40 minutes away from us. It's just not that lucrative. Um, and we felt like our efforts were better spent towards opening a farm store and then doing a delivery route through our mm, major okay. populated areas in Little Rock. Because I think today, in today's day and age, I can hop on my phone, even me, and where I'm at, in the country, I can hop on my phone and I can pick out what I want from, you know, if I need these five things from Walmart and, and they'll deliver it to my door. Like, Oh yeah. It's so convenient. It's incredibly convenient. But then we get, and I'm not anti farmer's markets, but then we go as farmers and we go to a farmer's market. One of the most inconvenient things for the consumer. (laughs) And I respect the people that go to a farmer's market and, and shop weekly. Because that is a massive commitment for one and two. It's a uh, yeah, it's just, it's very inconvenient in today's day and age where the consumer expects convenience, and so that's why we moved more towards doing the deliveries and obviously the farm store. People have to come to us, but we open the farm store because it's it's an experience for people. Yeah, 
And that's that was part of the reason we opened the store was obviously from a sales standpoint, but also I think people want to feel more connected to the food they eat. And uh, and I think you can successfully open a store like we've opened, even out in 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 the country in rural America. Um, you know, it just depends. We've got enough traffic in our area. We're not t- a tiny town, but so we've got enough traffic that it, it makes sense. But you just it's calculated risk, like anything. You know, is it worth spending twenty grand to open a farm store? Well, if you only can sell a hundred dollars a product a week, it's probably not worth it. You know, um, those are just the risk you take in anything. Um, so that's kind of been our consumer, you know, farm to consumer uh, route. But again, I think just the consumer has to become more educated. And we, ha- we as farmers and educators um, have to continue to educate people of, um, about their food. Because I think a lot of people still just don't know. They have no clue. Um, and that's not, that's not saying they're wrong or, they're, or, or anything. Like at one point I had no clue. But I just had to be edu- become educated and had to learn from people that were teaching and I had to care, you know? And so not everybody's your customer. Some people, they don't give a rip. They want to buy the cheapest food possible. And, you know, that's just reality. Well, that'll always be the case. Um, but there are also people that care and want a really high quality product. I like that. So I feel like the talking point for the episode, which you brought up is phenomenal. Like you, you stopped going to farmer's markets and you did, the farm store and delivery routes because the consumer expects convenience because they have stuff like Walmart delivery and all that stuff. That That's huge. I mean, you are literally like finding what consumers want and you are going to those expectations instead of, you know, expecting them to pivot around you, like just going to farm stores or um, like, like solely your farm store or solely a farmer's market. Um, that's awesome. Like, did you do, was any of that in kind of, um, because of covid because of the pandemic like was any of that kind of a direct response to that at all because i've heard a lot of stories where people started delivery routes because of covid like after the pandemic yeah i feel like covid made a lot of farmers shift and we weren't we weren't a commercial operation <clears throat> during covid we uh, we started after okay. you know in regards to becoming more of a a farm actually growing stuff to sell it um you know, actually, the first farm I tried to start in Colorado completely failed. By the way, that's a whole nother. Oh, story. So, yeah, we can talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, um, I don't. I haven't talked a whole lot about that story, but I do share it with people because I think it's a good learning lesson. But um, so no, for, so for us, I think it was. Um, I just think is is what people expected, and and again, I think partly the the farmers market not being very financially worth it. Um. And then again, like, man, going to a farmer's market every Saturday when you've worked all week, it, it's a grind. Like, I respect the farmers that do it. And there's yeah. there's farmers that go every weekend to year-round markets. I, that's tough, man. Like, that's, to me, I, I would be burnt out. But everyone's different, and some people love the market. But for us, we just don't have one, to me, that's very financially worth it. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I think just the consumer... We're just in a different world of what the consumer wants nowadays. It's been good though. I mean, the, the great part is, is like, man, I can go with, do a two hour delivery route and I can have consistent sales that are pretty much guaranteed. It's not controlled by the weather. And I do my route. I contact my people that I'm do that I, that I do my deliveries to. Yeah. I can, I have a much, I can control myself much more versus I can show up on a Saturday to a farmer's market and it's raining or there's a football game and no one mm-hmm. shows up 
and now I've got all this product, and then I had, the, and then I got this with my sales. My sales are very inconsistent. To me, it just it's a no brainer. But I get if we had a four thousand dollars Saturday market, we'd probably be attending it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, it's like figuring out what works for you, and if if something doesn't work, like nip it in the bud, try something else. And that's and that's exactly what I was talking about earlier. Like some people, they have. Sorry, I keep knocking stuff over. <laughs> no, you're good. Some people, uh, you know, they're 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 outside major metropolitan areas, and it makes sense. It's like they can go on a Saturday and sell six to ten thousand dollars of vegetables. Mm, that's so, wild. Yeah, that's a lot of vegetables. That's a lot. Um, Ray Toller, it'd be a good one to have on because they they they. I mean, they're a large operation, and they attend multiple uh, major markets. You know, one in Franklin, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. They go to they go to uh, several others, but they're they're next level on regards to um, how big they are. I mean, it's a, it's an operation, um, but yeah. So they have they have some of those markets, and for us, it's just every farm is just unique, and that's the beauty of it. Oh, a hundred percent. And so, before I forget, I want to talk to you about the farm store that you have because it's self service, right? Yeah, it's completely just honor system. Um, yeah, I'm staring at it right now from, from my, oh, nice. Okay. Um, yeah, it's completely on our system. It would not work everywhere. It works for Mm. us. Um, you know, I don't think you could necessarily probably do it in the city. Um, I mean, it just, I think it just depends on where your, where your farm's located. Um, so yeah, it works great. We've had zero issues. You know, we've got cameras up on the inside and outside. Like if someone wants to steal a, a bag of lettuce, like they're, you know, yeah, they're going to steal it. I mean, it is what it is. Um, yeah. But for the most part, it, it works really, really well. Um, and it's as ba- basic as it gets. We have no insulation. We've got two extension cords running from the house that power the freezer and refrigerator and the lights. You know, it's 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 as basic as possible, but it's it's still nice. Um, you know, we, we'd love to run electrical and insulate and all that. But at the end of the day, it's just it comes down to with farms. It's like, man, you, you've got to be really selective of what you what'd you invest in, you know? Um, yeah. Limited, limited capital and you gotta be smart with it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. We've got a friend of the show who's been on a couple of times. Her name is Jenny. She's got one kind of like this. It's called the grab and grow greenhouse. And it's, it was like a little greenhouse that she started and then it grew and she started selling beef. So she opened up a second, like a second building at that original location where it's like in their garage kind of, but like, it's super nice. They sell like beef and drinks and like cookies from the local community flowers and stuff. So, and again, it's like kind of on the honor system. Like you can go in there and I think they have like a camera where they can watch people and watch them. Like, I think like the whole concept of self-service farm store is so cool. I wish we had something like this in Panama city because we definitely don't, but it's such a cool concept. I think it's growing a lot you know, because it used to be a thing. I, I think there are a lot more of them back in the day. And I think they're becoming more of a a thing again. And I think, too, for farmers, it's like, man, it, what a powerful tool. I just stock the freezer and refrigerator and people come to me and pot, and purchase. And I don't I don't have to stand up there and, you know, be a cashier. I mean, it just it happens passively, which I think is really incredible and a powerful tool for farmers that have already oh, yeah. had time. Um, so. It's a, it's Which a cool might, concept. Oh, yeah. And you don't have to hire anybody else that's going to be, I mean, especially if you're kind of like starting out, that's going to be a huge expense. So you don't have to do that, at least starting out until you, you know, until you grow the store super, super well. 
Yeah, and if it got to, if it gets to that point, it's like okay, then you can hire someone. But like for us right now, the farm store, we would break even if we had to pay someone to you know mm. man it. It wouldn't yeah. make financial sense. Um, but at some point, for some people, it may explode, and it's like okay, let's expand this thing, make it bigger, and let's you know have a full time cashier in the store. But that's again, it's just everybody's situations unique on that. Oh, a hundred percent. And so going back to your, your delivery routes, um, how do you manage that? Like, is that on a subscription basis or, I mean, what is that? Like say somebody doesn't want produce that day. Like how do they get in touch with you? Like what's your whole system look like? Yeah. So right now I have, I have the, uh, I have the budget friendly system, <laughs> texting, which, which is, uh, which is texting. Nice. Okay. Uh, I've heard that from a lot of people. Yeah, you know, I had when we first started, we were doing some deliveries, and we used a, a software company called Barn to Door. It's a pretty popular okay. um, system where people can come on, they can order, and it, you know, we Barn to Door was good. It was just expensive, and personally, I don't until you're getting like, I'd say like thirty plus deliveries a week. I think it's it, it's still manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we'll do like. We have a list of like 30 families that are on okay. our route. And I just text them every week on Friday. I have availability list and prices. And the great part about having the farm stores, we have all the value-added products like the jams and jellies and salsas mm-hmm. and honey and granola. And then we also carry beef, chicken, and pork in the store. You know, we don't produce the value-added products. We also don't produce the meat. We just produce the eggs and vegetables off our farm. But it gives me a large diversity of items that I'm able to send to these people to where when they're shopping with us, they feel like they're going to the grocery store. And Mm. I think that's been powerful. If we just sold spring mix and carrots and radishes and tomatoes and some microgreens, you know, then our, our, our weekly order amount is going to be relatively low. Right. Um, There's just only so much, there's only so much produce or vegetables that people are buying every week, but with having all the value added stuff, having the meats, you know, that really helps drive up our overall sales price, our average ticket price. And again, I think people are really excited about it because they kind of have an all-in-one place where they can get high-quality meats and vegetables, and then it's delivered to their door. But yeah, I just send a text every week, and I have a, a cutoff deadline and a minimum order amount, or it's a $10 delivery fee. Mm-hmm. And mo- everyone surpasses that, you know, the minimum. Um, and I do the deliveries Friday mornings, and we have our weekends which is really enjoyable because we don't go to a farmer's market anymore. So um, it's really great, man. It's been, it's been phenomenal for us. Now, if you don't mind me asking, like, have you, have you seen, like, how has these home delivery companies, like whether it's Instacart or Walmart delivery and all that stuff, has that impacted the business at all? From a farm, from your, in regards to the farm business? Yeah. 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 Not really. Cause I think the people that want, I mean, most people that we deliver to in Little Rock, they're like, I've been wanting to find, you know, a place where I can get organic vegetables and, and, and quality pasture-raised meats. And, like, people don't know where to get it. Like, you know, that's the thing is, like, they, they've got to go digging around to actually find a place where they can get this. But then it, at some level, it has to be convenient. I mean, these people have, you know, two, three kids. They've got lots. They've got full-time jobs. And it's like, you know, they just, they can't devote a Saturday to running around to farms or running around to a farmer's market. You know, they've got, they've got full lives that they live. Oh yeah. And, uh, 
So we've had phenomenal feedback. I mean, people text me all the time. They're like, hey, these three people want to be added to the list. You know, they're super excited about it. You know, just, man, I think people taste the difference and they're like, wow, this is incredible. You know. That's awesome. Do you have like a max amount of people on the list that you allow, or is it just pretty much as many people that want to join? I mean, it? I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna keep growing it until it's not worth <laughs> until we're we're uh, and then at that point I may go on to like a I may change the system a little bit and maybe it's more of a CSA model or mm. not necessarily CSA but maybe an exclusive membership type model. I don't know. Um, right now we're perfectly meeting demand. We're going to continue to expand as we meet demand. And I think, I think that's the sweet spot for farmers is that's, you know, and that's, that's the number one mistake farmers make, man. They grow too fast and then they've got all this surplus they don't know what to do with that. They spent so much time, energy and effort to grow or raise. And then they're like, oh, what do I do? I'm composting lettuce. It's like, that's, there's nothing worse than that. Composting yeah. product or not being able to sell something. So, um, but you know, it's just counter, it's countercultural to go slowly. Um, Everybody wants to grow fast, and uh, sometimes that's not the best move. Yeah, you want to scale as quickly as possible because you know you think if I scale and get super big, I can make all the money. So I'm just going to scale as quickly as possible because I want to make as much money as possible as soon as possible. Because you know I want the brand new eighty thousand dollar truck as soon as possible. <laughs> yes, and and don't get me wrong, like, yeah, but you know the thing is, is like we're a really small farm, you know, but the farming is not our only model and our income stream. I mean, like I devote a lot of time towards content creation because that's where my real passion is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoy growing the food for people and it's another income stream, but I want to teach others about it. And Oh yeah. That's where the real passion is. So it's like, I'm fine. Like I don't really don't want to grow our farm that much more. Like I'm not trying to be, you know, Rose Creek farm, you know, which is the, the farm I was referring to that Ray, Ray owns yeah. and operates. You know, like I, I don't really want to be that big, um, at least at this point. So every again, everyone has different dreams and aspirations and different markets to be able to have a monster farm. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but um, <laughs> no, that's perfect. And you know, kind of go on for that. Like, how do you think we can get more people involved in agriculture, like more farmers like you? That way, you don't have to feed a thousand families you can keep this audience that you already have and this really good customer basis instead of like having to grow where you can't you know where it's just unrealistic you know like how can we get more people involved you know i mean i think at the end of the day there's got to be more people that get into farming um mm. which you know from a farming standpoint a lot of people are like oh i don't want competition <laughs> it's yeah. Like, well, yeah i mean i don't i don't necessarily want another farm store to open up you know uh one mile down the road i mean that that doesn't excite me. Um, yeah. You know, but 20 miles away, sure. <laughs> yeah, but 20 miles, yes, 100%. But the thing is, is, you know, it just, we need more farmers. And, you know, what got me in, into farming, which is was part of the, the, the failing farm story of a, a farm we started that failed, was I read Curtis Stone's book when I lived in Colorado in 20, mm. 2018 or 2019. Curtis Stone wrote The Urban Farmer, which is basically talking about, you know, farming in an urban environment in people's front backyards and Mm -hmm. uh, basically leasing people's front backyards to farm at a very small scale and be really profitable. And that was the first book I'd read. And I was like, what? You can you can 
farm. You can like urban farm and make money. <laughs> um, it blew my mind that you could grow vegetables and, and, and make money doing it on a very, very small scale. And that's what got me into it. Um, and I think we just, we need more people that are interested in it. But um, luckily now I think that it's way more, uh, I won't say mainstream, but it's, it's, it's become way more popular and people know of it. It's like, Oh, you can run a really small farm and, and make a decent living. Um, yeah. Which is That's cool. Awesome. Oh, a hundred percent. It's like to, to be able to grow that. I mean, it's like, dude, I live my dream every day. It's like, I, I, I get to grow vegetables and, and really I grow, I, I run the farm on a very part-time basis and it's like, it's a, it's a decent living, you know, and, mm-hmm. but people don't look people just look at the money and they don't realize what else that comes along with it. It's like, I don't really drive anywhere. So that eliminates gas, wear and tear in a vehicle. Um, and you know, when, when we have kids one day, it's like my kids will be able to be out there with me. Like there's a lot of, um, in, intangible things that I think people don't look at and they just look at like, Oh, well you only can make $50,000 a year, or $80,000 a year or whatever. And they don't look at those other aspects, the quality of life. Um, you know, and I think you have to look at everything from a holistic standpoint in life. That's just my philosophy, though. Yeah, no, that that's a really good approach. And let, let's kind of talk about the the Colorado farm. Like, what was your idea, and then what were some of the lessons you learned from that? That's good, man. So, so <laughs> that's when I so I got into that's when I read Curtis Dunn's book, and then yeah, um, we were in Denver, okay. and I was working a job there. But then we were I was kind of transitioning out of that to start a farm. And very similar, we're going to be really small scale. But the thing is, is we we, we were renting this half acre, uh, you know, it was a house and on a half acre mm-hmm. in uh, in Denver, which is very, very expensive. And this, this was in 2019, so it's way more expensive now. Um, oh, 100%, yeah. But the rent was really high. And I just, I didn't realize, I think the amount of cash that you need to start a farm you know, especially market garden, like there's just a lot of infrastructure for starting a, a, a market garden farm um, mm-hmm. versus all I need is a chicken tractor and I need to buy chickens. Um, you know, there's just, there's just a lot. There's just a heavy infrastructure <clears throat> startup cost, in my opinion. And we had like 15 grand, I think, set aside to start it. And I realized fast that was just not enough money. <laughs> um and, and I've got a different opinion as, you know, you've got, you do have market garden farmers that they're bootstrappers, like don't spend a dime and, you know, just work with what you got. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, man, you, there's just a certain amount of infrastructure you have to purchase to start a farm. Yeah. Like, and so I get a little frustrated with the bootstrappers that, you know, they talk about starting a farm with no money because I, I just it's unrealistic and that was the that was the frustrating part for me reading Curtis Stone's book and some of some of these other guys were I don't know I love Curtis Stone and he did he doesn't even farm now but you know they kind of painted a little bit of a picture of like oh you can start this thing for five grand and man it's just a lot harder than that I think it takes a lot more cash a lot more capital um you know, I, people would disagree with me on this, but I just think it takes a decent amount it, it, to get a business off the ground. It takes a lot of fuel, um, just as it does to get an airplane off the ground. It takes a lot of initial fuel to get that thing up in the air. And I think the same way with any business, a farm, any other type of business, it just takes money. 
to get it going. Yeah. Now, do you, I mean, I feel like you've pretty, you've gotten pretty successful with what you're doing now. I mean, not just the farm, the farm store online, like, do you think kind of going through that failure a little bit helped you get to where you are now? Oh, hundred percent. I felt a lot of shame after, you know, basically we, we let, we moved back. My wife and I just got married. We were trying to start the farm and like through a series of events, like we had a car that got totaled, mm. like, and then I just realized, I was just like, man, we need a lot more cash to get this thing off the ground. And, and we were still like six months from, like we, we were dead of winter. So it's gonna be like another four or five months before we really were going to be in the peak growing season. And our rent was like 2,500 bucks a month, which that place mm-hmm. we're renting now is probably like at least 3,500 a month. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so I felt a lot of shame. Like we, we moved back here where we're from, which was ultimately, I feel like that was the route we were, we were supposed to be on. And, and so we ended up moving back and it all, it all worked out. Like I would never would have dreamed five years ago when I was living in Denver, Colorado, that I was going to, you know, have a farm in Greenbrier, Arkansas. Like I'm not even from Greenbrier, from Little Rock. And, um, so it's just crazy to think about, but yes, 100%, I learned a ton of valuable lessons and I think that's where we all have to look at failure a little bit differently. You know, failing doesn't mean I'm a failure. It just, it's just a learning lesson. And I learned a ton about starting a business that uh, through, through a failing launch, a failing start of a farm, it, uh, it taught me a lot for sure. Yeah, that always reminds, like hearing any sort of like failure stories reminds me of two things. One, it's like that line and it's like, this is what success looks like. And it's not like a, linear like going straight up line it's like curves it goes up and down sideways and another one it's like would you rather have regret towards failing or regret towards not trying and like nine times out of ten the people are like i would rather like have some sense of failure instead of like you know i never tried like if failure means you are trying it means you're not stagnant and you know like you're willing to put some skin in the game and so i i feel like there, i don't know i feel like because people have been I don't know, online, I feel like people are sharing their stories, like we've gotten a little bit more comfortable with failure a little bit, maybe, hopefully. So I think that's been kind of good. But but yeah, that's awesome to hear that you've learned a lot and like a lot of your success now is from those early failures. Yeah, man, it's a, I'm with you. I think more people are, are open about things like that now. And it's part of life, man. We all, we're all going to quote unquote fail. Yeah. Many things, but I, I just don't view it as that. It's just, Failure is an opportunity to learn and and grow, and that's the that's the beauty of it. If you look at it that way, but yeah, that's not, that's one of the number one regrets of the dying man is they wish they would have done this, they wish they would have tried that, and I just don't ever want to look back at my life and say, man, I didn't try something that I felt passionate about or I felt God God you know God drawing me toward to do to try, um, you know. And, and, uh, I just, I don't want to end my life that way. And I don't want my family or my kids to end their life that way. Like the, you know, worst case you try something and it fails or you figured out you didn't like it. Oh, what oh yeah. At least oh, yeah. for it. Cause the next thing you go for, you're going to be like, wow, this is what I love. I'm passionate about it. And you could be wildly successful at it, you know? And, um, so anyways, I could talk a long time on all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. No, that all, uh, I mean, talking about this failure, it reminds me of that cheesy poster that I think we've all seen in like middle school and high school. It's like, shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. I mean, 
like the, the thing about failure, like we can we can pick what we fail at. And eventually, if we fail enough, we're going to succeed at those things. Like, like, for example, I'm trying to be we've got a, a little 18 foot center console boat and I'm trying to be like more of a saltwater fisherman. And I suck. I don't know the right time to go out, the right lures to use, the right um, things to look for on the bank. Like and so like, I'm learning the more I fail at that, I will learn like the right spots, the right time of day, like. If you fail early and often, you can succeed a lot more later on. So, yeah, like if you fail, you're doing something good. If you're not failing every now and then, you're not doing anything worthwhile. So maybe, you know, try to fail a couple things. Not yeah. I'm not saying like if you're still in school, but, you know. Yeah, well, that's the power of too. I think having, a, having mentors in the world, you know, that can speak that into you when you're failing or oh, I failed or you're down about something, you know. Um yeah, just having the power of a, of a father figure, a mentor, you know, I think just has a, a massive role in, in, uh, in everyone's success, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's like, we're all our success. A lot of our success is, is based upon a lot of other people helping us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the beauty of it. And, um, this is, so it's a, I feel like it's a call to humans, you know, a call to us to, to be, more other centered and focused on how can I help other people achieve what they want, you know? And, and, uh, and that's the beauty too. When you become successful at something, then you have people coming to you asking for help. And that's where you have, like you get a lot of that contribution, um, that fulfillment piece. Yeah. It's fun how that happens. Like you try to get a mentor and then they're helping you and then you get to a certain stage and then you become the mentor. And so it's like, you can kind of like carry on that knowledge a little bit from, what you learned and carry it on for somebody else that was just like you, but maybe a couple years behind you. Yeah, man, it's a hundred percent. You know, that's the, <laughs> that's the beauty of it. And that's where it just, it, everybody's got to do their time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've all, we've all got to do our time. We've all got to learn and figure it all out. Um, yeah. So I'm going to link everything in the description for your Instagram. Like what, what other like social media platforms are you super active on? You've got 110,000 on Instagram, which is phenomenal. Like what other platforms are you on? All the major ones, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and obviously YouTube. And then we're on, you know, threads, but I mean, that's a a brand new, uh, brand new deal. That's like, yeah. What is your threads experience so far? I'm enjoying it, but I feel like after a couple of weeks, it's kind of like died down. Like the hype is kind of like settled. It's probably similar to me. I got on it and I was like tweeting every two hours or or threading every (laughs) threading. Yeah. yeah. And then I've, uh, I've only done it. Like, I'm like, Oh, I need to get a thread out or tweet out. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's good. I, I just don't get on there enough, you know, and it's not my major it's not my, my big focus, you know? Yeah. Well, well now it's weird because like, if you want to get on thread, you got a thread, but if you want to tweet, you get on X and now it's called an Xing or something. Like it's not even a tweet. It's not a tweet, but on Twitter, it's still, there's still the tweet button there, but even though it's not called a tweet, it's it's weird, man. I don't know what's going on, but I'm still on Twitter. So I'm just like following all the drama and it's funny to see like the dialogue between threads talking smack about Twitter and the people on Twitter talking smack about threads. So it's like they're all having these discussions that neither side are seeing. I know. It's funny. You know, the great part about threads is I feel like you can or Twitter, you know, because I mainly focus on, on video content is yeah. you're able to do those like, you know, you're, you're able to share more of your thoughts in an informal manner of mm-hmm. like, here's here's three Senate thought on this. And that's what I do like about Twitter or or threads. Um, you know, but anyways, 
<laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, your your videos on Instagram, on YouTube are really fun and they're really like very like quick bits of knowledge, like why you're doing it, what animal byproducts look like, um, what you're, I'm looking at a couple new ones, like the okra forest that you've got going on. Like they're, they're all really, really cool. I like them. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a, uh, one day at a time. It's like anything else, you know, you just slowly build things and, uh, yeah. So it's just, just part of the process. I mean, you get it. It's like, you've been, you've been doing this for a while, man. You know what it takes. It's like, it just, it takes doing a podcast every week, week after week, being consistent. And that's just what it takes to for anything, in my opinion, to be successful. So. Yeah, it's funny because social media, you can share so much, you can learn so much, but that pressure will get you because you're like, I got to make content every day. I got to stay relevant. I got to react to stuff that's going on. But I mean, I feel like, I mean, kind of like what you said, like one day at a time, you'll be fine. Like just kind of take it in strides. If you're a content creator, even if you're just like, I don't know, taking in the content like just kind of take it one day at a time yeah so tell so tell me this is uh so for the so the podcast um like what is is this your are is this your full-time gig or are you doing this full-time or do you have a do you have another job or you fill me in a little bit on that if you don't if you don't mind sharing yeah no no so yeah no this is just a side gig like a side hustle um we're not profitable yet we were profitable last year. I think we were 400 bucks profitable, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I've got a day job. I'm a software analyst here in Panama City, so that's the day job. But it's pretty flexible because I like telework a couple of days, go into the office a couple of days. But um, like usually in the afternoons after work, I'll do a couple interviews, edit some videos, do some posts and stuff like that. So maybe one day it'll be the full-time gig. One day. I think that'd be super fun. But you never know. Yeah. Hopefully that'd be really fun. Yeah, man. And are you post? And because I haven't, I, I I glanced at the channel. Yeah, yeah. You, do you post all these? Do you post all your interviews to YouTube? Like, what is your, uh, like for you? I know you've got vision for where you want it to go. Like, what's your vision yeah. from a monetary standpoint um, for the future of the podcast and the content? Oh man, good question. I, I love just like chatting with people about content creation. So this is great. Um, yeah. So I really like. The podcast, Instagram, and YouTube. And so the YouTube channel has been really good, you know, to post our farm tours, to post clips. And so, and I'd love to get your opinion on this too. Like I'm trying to rework um, the clips on YouTube because I would just like upload clips of the podcast, but then it wasn't really like, I don't know. I feel like it wasn't geared towards the audience. Like I wasn't making it personal um, for the subject matter. So now I tried it last week. I'm trying to like add some personal context to it um by like recording a quick little like like little segment like hey like in this video we're going to talk about this because of x y and z here's what you can get out of it because i've listened to a couple people on youtube that are like if you make it relatable to your your viewer they're going to come back more and you can get more views so i'm trying to do that a little bit more on the youtube side but um again it's weird because there are some clips that i have with just it's just clips out of context clips that will get a ton of views like the one from Joel Salatin. So I'm like trying to have like a, you know, like a good balance of the two. So I don't know. I think, but I think the, the YouTube channel is really fun. I'm trying to focus both on that and the podcast really is like the main two things with like Instagram, the third. Yeah. It's a tough, I mean, the, the content creation world. I mean, I know there's people that have gotten really successful and or made a lot of money or whatever. And I think we hear a lot of those stories. Yeah. But again, it's like anything. It's like 
you hear those stories, but you don't hear the hundred others of like the person that's just that's grinding and they're not really making like they're just not making a lot of money. Um, and it just takes time. Like I, I've just I have to tell myself that every day of like, yeah, I'm not I'm not making money I want to make with content, but three years from now, five years from now, where could it be? Yeah, and I have to put my focus on that. But I mean, yeah, it, it's tough, man. Like. Just because it's a massive time commitment, you know, like even what you're doing, it's like, man, it's a large, it's a, I mean, I know you're doing the interviews and stuff, but it's like, it's a bit, it's still a big time commitment. You got the editing, you've got everything else that goes into it, the scheduling, the reaching out to people to schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, which has been my hesitation for starting the podcast. But again, I know that the great part about them is you can chop up those conversations. Yeah. It's funny. Of- it- yeah, it's great. I mean, if, especially if you do a video podcast, I mean, you can, you can, not only do you have the audio for the podcast, but then you can have YouTube videos, you can have clips on Instagram, on Facebook. So you can, I've learned this term a little bit by watching a couple like influencers on YouTube. You can package the content a little bit better where you can like, you can tease the podcast interview on Instagram and then post the podcast and then post the video on YouTube like a couple of days later. That way you're, you're kind of like triple dipping on your content and then you can repurpose it for a newsletter. You can repurpose it here or there. So yeah, you it's weird, but uh, you, you can do pretty much almost like all the directions for your content. Do you feel like that, you know, cause you see these in-person podcasts and if you got to jump, we can, we can hop on. No, 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 you're good. You're good. I'm sorry. Like you know, the people that have a podcast studio and oh yeah they're not doing it this style they're doing it where it's legitimately in person they've got multiple cameras on people which i feel like the production value on those is ultra high quality because because it's in person oh yeah Um, you know do you feel like that you're able to you know at what level do you feel like that like how much of a difference do you think there is on that um because i've actually thought about building out a, a a a podcast studio one day when we start, when we launch one just for in-person podcasts. But then again, you're only gonna be able to interview local people, at least from an in-person standpoint, unless they're traveling through like, but I guess my question is, is, you know, like how much of a difference do you see in that? Just because it's like, I'm in my, I'm in a random room. The audio is probably not as good as you're going to get. So the production value is not going to be as high. Like, what are your thoughts on all that? I don't know. I think it really depends on the show. Um, like, for example, I actually, I've been doing this like four years. I actually have my first in-person interview coming up next week whenever whenever I go visit Lazy Acre Farms. But I feel like it just kind of depends. I know you can have like, I mean, you, obviously like doing this four years, you can have great discussions online, but you can also have them like in person. So I feel like it just kind of depends on the guest. It depends on the topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, and so this is weird. I've noticed... I've noticed this. My wife loves a podcast called Crime Junkies. And they do theirs in a room. But every time I listen to it, their audio, I'm a little bit biased, but their audio is horrid compared to my audio. <laughs> and they do it in the same location. And I'm like, like how? Like how is theirs so popular, but the audio is so bad? And I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? It's the story. It's like the package. It's how they're doing it. So I'm like, if you've got less than ideal audio, but you've got great content and you're in person, go for it. Like maybe you're doing it on Zoom and the audio is not great. Like if the story's there, it's going to be fine. So I feel like, yeah. um, I mean, like think about it kind of like a like a bad TV show. N- not a bad TV show, but 
if the writing and the story is really good of the TV show, but it's not shot very well, like it's just kind of shot like very lazily or something, like maybe, you know, it's still good. It's, it's all about the story. Or maybe there's something that's like super dupers, like the cinematography is out of this world, but the story's not there. So you're just not going to watch it. But yeah, I feel like it's all about kind of the content itself, really, I guess. I agree, but, man. Content, yeah, I, content value over production value. It's oh, always, yeah. Content value always trumps the production value. But, you know, there's there's a balance. and But, yeah, I mean, there's a, a – I don't know if you follow Sean Cannell. <clears throat> um, he's, he's kind of a YouTube uh, educator. Um, okay. They run a, they run a uh, multiple channels, but the big one's called Think Media. Oh it's, yeah yeah yeah! I know who you're talking about yeah yeah. Um, but he he talks a lot about that. I went through his uh, video ranking academy a couple of years. Nice. Ago, and he talks a lot about that content value over production value. Yeah. But um, so yeah, I I, I agree with you, man. Um, that's why you see YouTube channels where all they're doing is they're turning their phone around, filming what they're doing. The content or the production value is terrible, but they've got like half a million subscribers. It's like how how is that possible? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it it's wild. I mean, so I follow this guy. He has his name is Chris Williamson. He has the Modern Wisdom podcast. Um, he does um both in person and virtual interviews, and both are really good. But then he does maybe like three or four. It really depends on the guest. These super cinematic, just high high value production. Um, interviews but if you watch them usually the the ones that go viral are the ones that are online but i mean again like the high production value ones still get a lot of traction but i mean i feel like he does a mix of both where he does really good like low quality interviews like low video quality and then like a couple of like super duper high quality but i don't know i feel like you get to strike a good balance for that i mean like for example when i do the in-person one i don't know if i'm going to do video because i only have one camera but I might. I don't know. We'll see. But I'm really just going to focus on audio. And if we do camera, then we might. But totally. yeah, kind of. But yeah, it, it's it's so funny. You can. I feel like if you focus on having. We're getting meta here about content, but I feel like if you focus <laughs> on just creating the perfect content, you're never going to get it out. Like you've just got to oh, focus on creating story. content. Yeah, I agree, man. It's like good's better or done's better than perfect. It's like, oh, a hundred percent. You could spend you, you could spend hours editing. You know, you can spend days editing to get it perfect. It's like, man, just get the content <laughs> out there. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, think about movies. Like, how many movies have we watched where, you know, there's a there's a uh, there's a mistake in the movie. There is um, they didn't take out a, an, an an extra or a cameraman is in the shot. Like, even movies like upper Hollywood movies still have mistakes in them, and it's like it's better to get them out than to wait for them to be perfect. Because if you wait for them to be, be to be perfect. You're never going to release them. Yeah, no, I'm with yeah. you. It's a the content economy, man. It's 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 one I want to be in. I think it's a wise one to be in, but it may take you five years of of building it and making no money before you actually make good money. Which that's the thing. Everyone sees the the overnight success. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's like that person was not an overnight success. You're just seeing their success now, but you didn't see the the two, three, four, five, six years, 10 years of them honing their craft, being consistent. You just, you didn't know of them then. And now you know of them and you think they were overnight success. And it's like, most people aren't, you know? Oh just- yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, like, 
you've got to figure out to play the long game. I mean, just because you're watching a five second video doesn't mean that it took them five seconds to be successful. I mean, there's no telling how long it took them to get better at their craft. I mean, you've got to post, 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 post and get traction and get good at your craft before you can get, you know, super viral or so. I mean, I feel like the people that actually go viral are like 0.001%, maybe. Yeah. Probably a lot smaller than that. It's it's small. And you know, the, the people that are like, for instance, the people on YouTube that are like, I'm talking doing it at a very high level, like multi-million subscribers. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, they're they're crafting that video down like they're shooting a film. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're crafting the opening scene. I mean, they're they're reaching people with their fears and their motivators. I mean, it's a they're not just pulling out the camera and shooting a video. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, they've spent hours and days planning it out. You know, and that's why they're that's why it's really good, and that's why they're successful at it. You know, yeah. Well, now there's this whole idea. I mean, especially for for YouTube. That you that before you even start a video, you come up with the title and the thumbnail first, and then you make the video from that. So it's like, okay, so now I've got to like totally redo that. So like, if I'm trying to build a podcast and a YouTube channel, I'm like, I got to focus on this aspect now of a title and a thumbnail before the content. So it's like, well, all right, but oh, I mean, I hey, it is what it is. It's a good challenge, I guess. I'm pressing into that as well, man. With the with the thumbnail first, thumbnail and title before I even pl- script out the video. I mean, I you like I've just I haven't gotten the the traction I want in my long form YouTube content, mm-hmm. and you know I follow a guy named Daryl Eaves, which Daryl's Daryl Eaves is like the legend of YouTube, and um, he talks a lot about that. He's like, man, if you're if you're not getting the views you want on your content, it's not your content. It's or sorry, it's it's uh it's not it's not YouTube's fault. It's you. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, but yeah, that starting with the thumbnail, man, it's a Thumbnail and title. <laughs> now, do you do any YouTube shorts at all? Yeah, so all the videos. So that's and that's what I love about shorts is, you know, the video, the short form videos on Instagram, the reels. I post that same video to Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, yeah. YouTube Shorts. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of shorts is you can get now you can spread that reach on four platforms, which is just really powerful. And I think that was the beauty of when TikTok came along and then obviously the reels and the shorts and all that. Uh, short form is a great is a great tool, but I feel like the long form is is definitely the game. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. I mean I feel like I feel like shorts changed the game because I would get I mean, mine kind of ebb and flow, but I would get maybe a couple hundred views on Instagram for a, a reel and then I'd upload it to, to YouTube. And after like 12 hours, it'd have like 5,000. I was like, wait, yeah. holy cow. So it's weird. You never know a video is going to get traction on either platform. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. I've had that same thing. It's just <laughs> one bit, it takes off somewhere and then it doesn't really take off. But you know those when you have a viral video or you know it's like this video is going to be viral. You, you, I feel like you kind of know it and then it, the platforms pick it up. Um, you know, they just, they're smart. The AI systems they have for those platforms is pretty insane. And they oh, know yeah. it works, man. And it's just, it's a, yeah, it's a complex system. But yeah, I mean, the content economy, man, is going to continue to explode. So I, I, it's worth, <laughs> it's worth being in it, in my opinion. Um, so, but now I know everyone, everyone's trying to do it. 
Yeah, that's yeah. The market's getting saturated. Everybody wants to share their stories, which is great. I mean, we've got more stuff to choose from, but it's just you know, I guess everybody's your competition now. Yeah, and I think people think it's like I think people think that it's going to be easier, or they think they're going to be able to make a make a lot of money. You know, it's like anything yeah. else. Like I think you see the the glamour stories, and and then they realize like you got you got to be passionate about it. It's definitely not something you can just do i think you really gotta have a hard passion for something to, to stick it out to create the content but that's yeah. just my two cents you know my, oh no Th- that's a good two cents because you gotta pay attention and see what's going on you get to do your market research and everything figure out how to make content all that good stuff it is like a full-time job yeah definitely <laughs> but i really appreciate you I appreciate you having me on man this was uh this was cool i this is my first time doing a podcast actually on this on, the, on all this stuff so yeah man i i i appreciate it you were a great guest i will link all your stuff in the description but it was great to virtually meet you man and thanks again for coming on the show i enjoyed it see you trevor you have a good one man. thanks so much to dirk for coming on the show and thank you for listening you know the drill check out all the links below to see dirk on instagram facebook tiktok youtube to see more of his farmsteading adventures and also to learn more about what he does and why. And of course, check out more Farm Traveler content at thefarmtraveler.com. And we are so close to 1,500 subscribers over on YouTube, so go check out the channel if you haven't already. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week with episode 207. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.